Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, Monday Night Live. Tonight, I've got a friend of mine. In fact, I met him in Starbucks in uh, Guildford about 15 years ago after I'd been trained by Will Kintish on networking. We had a chat. We found we had a lot in common and that we were both lifelong learners and were interested in uh, helping people. Andrew's a barrister, a meditation trainer and a police trainer. And he's been involved in some very interesting negotiations, which uh, we've often discussed, no names and no pack drill. Uh, Andrew joined the army at 16, having left school, then became uh, left the army and became a uh, police officer. And while he's being a police officer, he trained to be a barrister. Now he's a barrister. And as I said, a meditation trainer. Welcome, uh, welcome, Andrew, to Monday Night Live. Thanks for joining us. Um, very interesting CV you have. Um, what got you to join the army at 16? That's quite young. Uh, I think I, you wouldn't join the army at 16 unless uh, it's almost out of desperation, to be quite honest. So I had, uh, I missed a lot of schooling, uh and at 16 I, I really had no nothing uh in the way of qualifications although i did have uh it, it transpired that i owed the tax man money so i joined the army and then within within three weeks i was up before the the pay uh the pay chap and he said to me there's something very strange about your record he said apparently you owe the tax man a couple of thousand pounds he said well of course it's wrong because you're only 16 I said, well, actually, I wonder if we could just pay the bill because <clears throat> for the past three years I've been working either on a removal van or down at the docks unloading ships or on the building site. So by the time I joined the, the army, yeah, I'd, I'd accrued this tax bill, which was my only qualification when I left school. <laughs> wow. And what did you learn in the army? You got posted to all sorts of places. What did you learn? Well, first of all, they teach you to shoot people, uh, which is very <laughs> considerate. But I, so, I uh, when I reflect at sixteen joining up, uh, it was I kind of think about it as putting it, putting it, putting myself uh, on my feet, and it also makes you grow up very quickly. Uh, and I think it's a sort of rite of passage, which almost turns you into a man really mm. uh, because they it's it's the resilience it's the uh it's the training and another uh, an interesting aspect is you you have uncles and uh, they talk about sort of developing development of a tribe but you're surrounded by these really caring uncles who are your the sergeants and your instructors and it's not really like you see in the films where it's all harsh and unpleasant. I mean, it's hard, but every all the instructors are, are concerned about developing you as a person. And they're really quite caring and considerate. So I think that was the, the most important aspect. Um, and are you able yeah. to say where you were posted to or is that something you'd prefer not to say? Uh, I can say uh, I spent first two years in the UK and then the last 20 months in Northern Ireland. Uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, no, I, was, I, was, that. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. So when you left the army, you joined the police. 
Is that is that what a lot of people do, uh, army people? Well, I, I've been in what's called the Special Investigations Branch, which was in the military. So it's a bit like a detective. Well, I was a plainclothes detective. Uh, and after you've done uh, my tour in, of Northern Ireland, there, there wasn't really anything in the military to do. There was no other challenge beyond the doing the work I'd done. So I really thought, OK, uh, I'll then transfer to the civil police. So I came to Surrey uh, with the intention of being a detective in the civil police, but that never occurred <clears throat> because they, I was promoted quite early to be a sergeant, uh, and and it was down. It was I was posted to Dorking, which was a bit sleepy hollow, uh, but in those days before the Crown Prosecution Service. They, uh, the local sergeant would brief the troops, do some admin, and then you'd go down to the local magistrate's court and you would prosecute the list. You were doing a lawyer's job in the court presenting cases. And I thought, oh, I quite like this. Uh, it seems very civilised after going out on the street on a Friday night and <clears throat> taking on the, the drunks and all that. So I thought... <clears throat> I'm quite keen on pursuing that. Uh, so first of all, I had to get an education. So I went to night school, took all my police exams. Uh, and then I began to clash with senior office, a, se a particular senior officer who stopped me getting promoted because he said I was too outspoken, which of course was true. <clears throat> but I realized that the as I was developing psychologically, uh, intellectually, that uh, the police required me to become more limited in my view. Uh, and, and yeah, I think I was outspoken. And uh, once, once, once my promotion was, was stopped, I thought, well, I'm clearly not in the right place. So that's when I decided I'd go off to university <clears throat> and uh, get a law degree with the intention of becoming a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, how old were you? With, how old were you then? Twenty-seven. Uh, okay. By then, well, that's, yeah. That's quite a quite a thing to do, isn't it? To uh, not get paid, give up a well-paid job with security to uh, study at university. And how long was the studying to be, become a lawyer at that point? It was a real uh, shock to the system because although I'd been studying doing A-levels, uh, that was pretty much part-time, but to go full-time studying a law degree in London, that was a bit overwhelming. Uh, mm. And I was, I was always, I was always doing catch-up. I never quite felt as if I was in control of anything, but that might, that may be people's general observation about studying the law because it was a bit overwhelming. Mm. Uh, and I, and I knew all the time that, the intellectual side would be a challenge, but the minute I communicated with people, I I knew I'd be okay then. So, uh, so I just struggled through the study, really. So it does seem a bit odd to me, and I'm sure it seems odd to other people, that uh, you're a meditation trainer <laughs> and studied meditation, which seems to me over here on this side of the pitch <sighs> and uh, law on the other side of the pitch. They seem a bit diverse. Tell us what that was all about. So coming out of Northern Ireland, uh, so that would have been late 70s, I don't think post-traumatic stress was recognised until about 1980. 
So it was quite clear that I was suffering from that. Uh, <clears throat> first thing I did was get on my motorbike and you know, drive. I, I remember riding around for about eight months just trying to get my head clear. Wow. Uh, and then and then I naturally took up meditation. <clears throat> and once I uh, acquired sort of the, <clears throat> the processes, I then began to be curious about the psychology underlying meditation and that's what <clears throat> i think that's where the overlap with the law because as you're if you're a lawyer especially in my area of criminal law you, you have to have uh, an inherent interest in psychology and so when i was looking at the psychology of meditation and uh western psychology i thought wow these two areas they really overlap and and so really, uh, it was the interest in people and their motivations uh, and how the Eastern mystical system analyzed the psych psychology of individuals. And then you have the Western system and marrying those two systems, uh, which I think helped me enormously as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. well, we'll come to one or two of the things we've discussed. But I just want to know, um, after studying meditation for 20 years you took yourself off on a retreat to the uh, Himalayas um, and I know yeah. that uh, perhaps you were married with a couple of kids at that stage I'm not sure of the timeline what yeah. um, what made you want to do that so that if you if you want if you're interested in meditation and particularly the mystical system and 20 years ago I would never have used the term the mystical system because I didn't really understand it there's uh, there's no it's not it's not like going and studying a course at university where you have the, the prospectus perspectives and it tells you what you're going to study and how it's not it doesn't work like that so the mystical system uh have has these indicators uh, uh or general direction and guidance but it's it doesn't it's not specific in any way so you're almost giving your direction of travel and then you have to go and examine that yourself and it's a it's like going into a landscape where you don't know what's in the landscape and you're feeling your way through you know you know what the guidance is but then you have to explore it yourself so it's very much an internal journey of the inner landscape where you're not really sure where you're going all you know is the general direction and after 20 years, I suddenly, well, not suddenly, I began to realize that I needed better instruction. The people teaching in the West were doing it second, third hand. And I was curious to be taught by the masters mm. of the Eastern system from, from there. Yeah, and well, I, so, get that. I get that totally. If you're doing something, go and study under the very yeah. best people in the world if you can which is uh, yeah. what i yeah. did at uh, harvard now um in the early days when we met and used to discuss things you told me something which i found hard to believe which was you go into court uh, you're a defense barrister normally aren't you you go into mm -hmm. court and when the jury is being sworn in you just go into your own space and watch what's going on to see who the decision makers are <laughs> Have I got that right? Can you run that past us? Yeah. So 
<clears throat> there's a, there's a concept which is quite familiar now to people in mindfulness. They talk about being in the present, mm. and I, I've I've spoken to mindfulness teachers, and and their being in the present and what I perceive to be in the present are quite different experiences. So when when I'm in court and the jury are sworn. Uh, each member of the jury stands up and for me the key is to allow my mind to fall completely still so complete stillness of mind uh, and I bring myself fully into the present moment and I also calm down my subconscious so everything is still and then I engage in listening but I don't listen with the mind I park the mind the mind doesn't is not involved in this process and I allow the, I allow the presence of the person so I'm I'm listening but I'm not just listening to what they're saying because they're all repeating the same thing but you're listening uh without the mind to their presence their history their anxieties their intelligence but without thinking and then at the end of the process, when all 12 members of the jury are sworn, naturally arising out of the contents of the subconscious is the information, which is who are the decision makers. Now, if you try and think about this process, your the intellect, uh, the conscious mind will then be processing. And that's just getting in the way. And my belief is my subconscious uh is is has so much more intelligence or access is so much more intelligence than my conscious mind so i allow the subconscious to process and intuitively i know who the three decision makers are going to be and usually there's about three people mm -hmm. uh, and then no, knowing that uh when i communicate with the jury i'm generally communicating on the level and trying to influence the decision makers mm -hmm. the other people are going to fall in line behind the decision makers but the key is that respect everyone on the jury so don't you don't ignore the others but you know how to you know the level that you're going to pitch things yeah okay so we'll come um we'll come back to the court in a minute but uh... You do. I know you do some great voluntary work at the Royal Surrey Hospital with the nurses and with some of the patients on some of the pretty tricky wards. What uh, meditation do you teach them? So it's the Fountain Centre. So anyone who knows locally, the Fountain Centre is the alternative alternative uh, therapists. There's a group of them, and they are attached to the cancer ward. Uh, and cancer patients at the Royal Surrey can access uh, all the different therapists at the Fountain Centre, and, and I've been volunteering there. So I go in once a week and uh, then run meditation sessions. And it's either for the staff who are very stressed, so sometimes they'll come in and, and I'll run a session with them, uh, or alternatively, I'll go up to the ward uh and so they'll close a ward of eight patients uh and then i'll run a meditation session with the patients who, who are normally in bed 
but uh, we try and bring them into a state, a deeper state of relaxation uh, and using the techniques that I learned in the East, change the energy in the room uh, and change the energy in the patients. Um, yeah, you, yeah. And, and it's that, what's that's and what's it, a bit like a hypnotic trance. We're talking about accessing the same sort of area, wacky area, as I call it sometimes when we're having a when we're having a bit of fun. But that's the, the unconscious mind or the subconscious mind, which uh, which is usually uh, needs quite a bit of skill to access, doesn't it? You need to be relaxed and uh, etc. for it. So it's nothing to do with hypnosis, and I don't know anything about hypnosis. No, it's, it's in the same area. Just well, it's that. yeah. No, what what is interesting is that that people can still, with some techniques, you can you can eventually uh, uh, still the mind, mm. uh, and you can do that. Uh, but one what one thing people really don't know much about is how to still the co the contents yeah. of the subconscious. Sure. So this is this is really what we're doing. <clears throat> Okay, no, that's great. So let's talk about uh, negotiations. So uh, you've gone, you've had a lot of negotiations uh, in the police, in the army, but in court, I imagine. How do you, um, you know, when it comes to it, and it's pretty marginal. How do you uh, negotiate with the judge and the jury? I guess the judge is the ultimate influencer of the jury. I guess is he or or, or not? Not really, no, because the, the the role of the judge is to ensure there's a fair trial and he sums the case up to the jury, but he tells the jury that they they are they make the decisions as to the facts of the case. Now, of course, the judge is going to be influential. I mean, just the way he sums the case up is going to influence the jury. Like in the American system, the judges don't sum the case up because it's recognised how much of an influence they can have over the jury, simply by filtering information. But having said that, uh, most judges, we got we have great judges in our jurisdiction. They're very fair, they're very reasonable. And if they're not, it's my job as the lawyer to appeal. But, you know, I rarely have to go down that road. So <clears throat> the, you have the judge who, who, who you have to argue the law in front of. So when I'm arguing the law with the judge, I have to put my thinking head on because he expects me to use logic and apply the law to the facts of the case <clears throat> and be very specific in my thinking. <clears throat> but when it comes to the jury, I don't apply my thinking. I apply my feeling because uh, the if you if you speak to the jury and the way you speak to the judge you're going to completely lose them and it's not because they're not intelligent because some of them are very bright but they are making a different decision they are using their intuition they're applying the facts of the case but they think in a very different way so you've got to speak to them differently <clears throat> now it's not a condescending way because it's all about respecting who they are. Uh, so you adjust your approach to who it is you're talking to. And then also say with a witness, where you're cross-examining a witness, that's a different approach altogether. So how is it you cross-examine a witness and try and put your client's case, but also identify the fact that they may be mistaken or confused or, or even lying. 
So that's a, another approach that you take. Mm. <clears throat> and all this has been witnessed by the jury because you know, legal arguments tend to be in the absence of the jury, but they're still watching you perhaps debate with the judge over things. So all this has to be consistent and in some way authentic. So the jury, you don't lose the jury because they're ultimately the, the deciders and they judge and assess you. So even your body language is under observation by the jury. Now they don't consciously think, oh, you know, the way he touched his ear that way is an indication of something. They don't, it, that, that process doesn't take place exactly. They are, they're present and they're watching, but constantly the subconscious is analyzing and processing. So if you're, if you're aware of the body and how they're thinking and how they're assessing you, even without knowing that they're assessing you, then you can have a far greater influence over their decisions. No, that's, yeah, I can see that, empathising with all the different people in different ways. Now, you yeah. train police officers to go in the witness box, don't you? Because I know that it's a big issue and a very stressful thing for a police officer to be cross-examined, mm -hmm. maybe a year after something happened. Mm -hmm. What do you do with them? Uh, so uh, when I was in the police force, my last job was in the, there's a, uh, the local police college up at Mount Brown in Guildford. Uh, and I would train the police officers in law. So I was uh, an instructor, a law instructor. And then leaving the police and 30 years later, <clears throat> I now go back. Uh, and so those, mainly the detectives, uh, and we, we run these courses where they are going to give evidence. Uh, <clears throat> and what I do is uh, I take police officers uh, and I get them to realize that their skill set, the skill set of a of a senior detective, is very similar to the skill set of a lawyer. And once I get them acting the role of the lawyer and cross-examining in court, uh, in role play, I get them to understand that the lawyers don't actually know, especially the junior lawyers, don't know much more than the police officers and often police officers are better at cross-examining because some of them have had years and years of questioning suspects in police stations and have developed a skill set now when you take a police officer and then put them in the role of the lawyer and say right have a go at that and, they, and suddenly they realize oh actually I'm quite good at this they recognize that the, the it's important they recognize that the lawyer's are actually not that much better than they are. Mm. And there's this anxiety in the police that the lawyers are much more intelligent and they're much better educated and, and you know they have much more status. That may well be right to a degree, but actually police officers have this great skill set, which is not that different to lawyers. And once the police officers realise this, and when I teach them the tricks of the trade of the lawyer, and how the police officer can prepare for cross-examination, suddenly their self-esteem goes right up uh, and they realise that they're in a much better position than they thought they were. Now, if I can do that in a day with a group of police officers and completely change their perspective about their, about their abilities, mm. I mean, that's great because I still have a strong 
association and still a love of the police and what they do and I love to support them uh, and I love to bring my knowledge of the court process and give it to them so they're better at what they do. I know you're going to get asked this by somebody and you may want okay. to answer <laughs> yeah. it until I later. know it is. <laughs> yeah everybody wants to know what these tricks of the trade are. Oh I see yeah okay uh, so for a for a, a, a police officer, it's very simple. So <clears throat> let's say they were witnessed an event. Uh, there's something called uh, the issue in the case, and that's relatively straightforward. So, for example, if there's a there's a fight and someone gets injured, then what's the issue uh, that the defence raised? And let's say the issue is self-defence. Once we've identified the issue, then that really is the what the case revolves around. And the police officer is going to be asked questions relevant to the issue. So you can almost predict what questions you're going to be asked because it's relevant to the issue in the case. Uh, and so you teach them things like this. And then in terms of cross-examining, uh, you can you once they realize that what they do in the police station, how they question people in the police station is just a very slight variation of what lawyers do in court then they realize okay <clears throat> well what what questions are they are they going to be asked well it's 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 in a sense it's simple if it revolves around the issue in the case and it's relative to the defense case uh it's relatively straightforward and also things of law what questions of law so it, it takes a while to, to get it across but ultimately they can predict pretty much what the area of question is going to be if they know certain facts if they it's like a jigsaw puzzle and if they put the pieces together in the jigsaw puzzle in the right way then it all becomes clear but you've got to teach them how to do that mm. yeah that's fantastic okay well we're nearly at the end of um, the formal part of uh, monday night live andrew um one tip from you, a um, educated man who's spent a lot of time with dealing with people with common sense. One tip for people going forward in 2023 when we uh, face some pretty tricky times. What would that be? Self-awareness. Right. Know yourself. An old philosophical uh, expression. Know yourself. If you know yourself and face your fears then you can pretty much face anything. Fantastic. We've got one question at the moment in the chat box. We've got a number of questions, but one related to uh, meditation. To what extent does the control of the breathing come into meditation? Uh, in the early stages, uh, it's useful to exercise. Well, I would say having, having studied the science of breath which is called pranayama i've i've studied that now for 40 years uh and it's a it's a very dangerous exercise uh, where people are taught to pause the breath which is very dangerous my observation would be all you have to do is watch and witness the flow of breath don't interfere with it and the object and here's the key <clears throat> the object of keeping the attention on the breath is it calms the mind that's the only purpose of 
breathing exercises. They get very complicated and everyone goes off on tangents and everyone wants to do wonderful things with it. In terms of the preparation for meditation, that's its only purpose. So don't get complicated. Don't pause the breath. Just simply witness the breath, allow it to calm. And that in turn automatically will calm the mind. And eventually, not eventually, after a while of watching and practicing, you then be, become able to calm the mind simply by control. And you don't need the breath. But breath is simply there to calm. When you say witness the breath, do you mean if I was <clears throat> um, sitting in a chair and trying to do this, I would just be thinking about it going in and out or visualizing it or feeling my lungs yeah it's a good question so you're not thinking you're simply if you like people can go on my website and there's some basic exercises there all you do is you take your awareness to the point of the nostrils where the air enters and leaves the body and you simply feel so if you do that now just feel the breath yeah, I'm doing it. Everybody do it. I'll put you on uh, gallery view. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the here's the the key is that the attention is taken away from the mind and goes to the breath. The attention is taking away from the mind. Every exercise you do in meditation is taking the attention away from the mind. And that's and that's it. So no thinking, just witness, just feel. But I, I've seen I've seen some exercises where people say, "Okay, switch your mind off, do a bit of meditation, can you know think about your breathing," and then they say, "How long can you keep your mind switched off for?" And I know sometimes it's like eleven or twelve seconds, and suddenly <laughs> the mind's working at a tangent. And I was just yeah. thinking when a lot of us, a lot of high high achieving people, wake up at uh, three or four o'clock in the morning and thinking about things and think. I want to get back to sleep, which doesn't work if you try to. But, you know, is that does that work as well, doing that sort of thing in, in the middle of the night? Sure, because it happens to me. So what's happening is the subconscious is processing, working away. Uh, my personal belief and from what I've studied and from what I've read in the ancient texts, 94% of our intelligence comes from the subconscious. The, the 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 conscious mind is a great very little value to me i mean i use it to work but i don't really pay it that much regard but when you're sleeping the subconscious is processing that's the real form of intelligence and inevitably the subconscious wants to communicate with the conscious mind the difficulty is it's speaking a different language uh so you're waking because the subconscious is trying to communicate and you wake and the ideas arise and that's the communication the difficulty is getting back to sleep because of course the subconscious is now active and the conscious mind is now engaged uh so the best thing to do is write it down <clears throat> and then put your head back on the pillow and then witness yeah the pen then witness the breath slow the breath and then because you've all come i'll tell you a secret okay i'm allowed to give you secrets i give these secrets away if you're lying there witness the there's in the eyes and the in the ridges around the eyes if you close your eyes you'll 
recognize that there's little flickerings going on mm. either across the eye or at the base of the eye now if you close your eyes and allow that to relax that flickering it takes a minute or two but it you'll get there that actually will calm begin to calm the subconscious because the two are connected so the breath through conscious level the eyes to the subconscious level that will calm you down i'm glad we're recording this so i can play it back and some other people might want to play that part back which is uh, the clever bit andrew we're nearly out of time can i thank you so much for joining monday night live and perhaps you'd uh, remind um everybody how they can contact you i know you've got one two websites uh one website for people that get caught speeding around the m25 at 150 miles an hour because yeah. that's what you specialize in and a website also for the uh, meditation what what are they so just just uh, google andrew henley and either meditation or criminal barrister and there's the two websites that will come up uh and for the for the meditation side there's some basic and and slightly more advanced uh recorded exercises which in the mystical tradition we don't really do the recorded thing but this was the beginning of covid and my students couldn't gain access to me and as you're right i didn't have wi-fi because i um, the only reason I get Wi-Fi now is because I'm renting a property, but I don't have TV, I don't have Wi-Fi. And so at the beginning of COVID, I recorded these exercises for my students to use. And they're still there because people want to use them. So uh, feel free. And then you can always contact me for any other guidance or advice. I mean, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, because I see Andrew two or three times a week in uh, very early in the morning. Indeed. Larks at uh, drinking coffee. Can I ask members of Monday Night Live to give Andrew the usual vote of thanks uh, in, in the normal Thank Monday you. night? Uh, Thank you so night. much, everyone. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me to come and speak. Which uh, which is always a pleasure. Uh, which uh, lawyers uh, always do. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to stop the recording now. If you'd stay on for a bit, that would be uh, really appreciated. Thanks so sure. much.